Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. It's the new year. Do you have the remotest idea of what will happen? I have no idea either. Although one thing I can predict with certainty about 2018, there will be a surfeit of stories marking the 50th anniversary of events from 1968. I know because I'm commissioned to write a few of them. 1968. Year of defeat, assassination, riots, and treason. And that's just in America. There were near revolutions in France and Czechoslovakia, an early demonstration of the violence which would consume much of Latin America over the next quarter century in Mexico City. We still live with the cosmic echo of those events. It's good to remember 1968 via news media, but I wonder what lessons people who didn't live through these cataclysms will learn. I remember 1968 very well. I was a sentient being on the cusp of adulthood. I finished high school, started college, and in between did my first work in public radio. One thing I can say with certainty is we did not look back 50 years to understand the circumstances we found ourselves in. I can't remember a single article or commemoration about the events of 1918. There may well have been reflections on the 50th anniversary of the end of World War I in November 1968 in the newspapers, but as that anniversary coincided with the tumultuous election of Richard Nixon, I wasn't paying attention. We certainly didn't sit around listening to pop tunes from 1918 on an oldie station, although I've always had a fondness for I'm Always Chasing Rainbows, a top hit of 1918, possibly because it nicked its melody from Chopin. How did I know that tune? Cultural osmosis, I guess. What I'm getting at here is that in 1968, I was transitioning from adolescent to adult as a paradigm shift was occurring in American society and culture. It was a blessed coincidence. But today, I'm not sure. Despite the dynamic growth in Internet platforms that deliver culture for free and seem to be changing society at astonishing speed, the paradigm shift at the top in American politics has not created a paradigm shift in cultural political activism in response to it. People are looking back to the 60s, to 1968, looking for a lesson, acting out as if it was still 1968, when pretty clearly it is not. If young people, and there are many more of them than folks like me, who were there the first time, are going to lead the way to resist the changes going on in American society, they need help in understanding the steps that led to 1968. So in this podcast, I'm going to free associate my way to providing that help. I hope to, anyway. The events of 1968 in America represented the culmination of trends that had been present throughout the decade. In January 1961, in his inaugural address, John F. Kennedy made generational discourse the prism through which to view and engage with American politics. The president said, right at the top of his speech, let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike, the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans. Kennedy went on, born in this century, tempered by war, disciplined by hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage, and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed, 
and to which we are committed today at home and around the world. The generation he was speaking of was my parents' generation, just a few years younger than he and who had voted for him, but in other ways his view was passed down to us. The ideals the handsome, vigorous man espoused were impossible for any politician to live up to, and the promises inferred from Kennedy's rhetoric, particularly on human rights, could not be delivered by any democratic political system because in order to maintain power, voters need to be pandered to, even as hard decisions about governance are taken. You campaign in poetry, then govern in hypocrisy or hypocritical prose. My parents might have understood and even expected the disappointments. Those of us just entering adolescence did not have the life experience to understand the way the world works. A lot of adolescence and early adulthood is spent learning how much your parents have been conning you and reacting against it. And maturity comes as you realize that the compromises they made with their ideals were actually necessary because you have to make the same ones. Kennedy, by genuinely, perhaps inadvertently, placing his administration in loco parentis, made many people my age and a little older judge government through the same emotional filters through which we judged our parents. When Bob Dylan wrote, Come senators, congressmen, please heed the call, don't stand in the doorway, don't block up the hall, or next verse, come mothers and fathers throughout the land, don't criticize what you can't understand, your sons and your daughters are beyond your command, it was not just lyrical rhetoric. The times they are a change in described the state of play. National politics had become a generation game. Dylan recorded that song in October 1963, and Kennedy was assassinated precisely one month less a day after the studio session. The generational river of disaffection with America, felt by many, not all, was already trickling along when Kennedy's murder sent it into full flow. Hard rain drove it to flood stage by 1968. Three great issues became entwined with generational psychology, civil rights, Vietnam, sexual morality, the activism that surrounded each brought forth forces of reaction from the right, but also from the left. Civil rights came first, and right-wing reactionary violence was immediate. A list of the martyred would take too long to read. You probably know their names, and if you don't, you should. But the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts of 1964 and 65, themselves the product of a quarter-century campaign, were, for some on the left, too little, too late. The reaction from the left side was also violent. Political liberalism is, by its nature, cautious. Among young African Americans and their white supporters, the guarantees of voting rights or equal access to education and jobs were gestures that came too late. Younger, more militant voices began to drown out Martin Luther King's cadences calling for nonviolent political action. The reality of economic life in the ghetto, with millions of individual dreams deferred, led to riot after riot, from Harlem in 1964 to Watts in L.A. in 1965 to Newark and Detroit in the infamous long hot summer in 1967. Vietnam crushed the ideals out of those who could remember not just precisely where they were when they heard that JFK was shot, I was in Latin class at Welsh Valley Junior High School, but also where they were when Kennedy gave his inauguration speech. I'd just come in from a snowball fight with my father and brother, 
Heavy snow had given us a day off from school. The same people who had served Kennedy were leading his successor, Lyndon Johnson, deeper into the Vietnam quagmire. The resistance to the war is often reported as a youth movement, but what is forgotten is how much of it was organized and given focus by people who were already in their mid-thirties, like Dr. King, or older and had fought in World War II or served time in prison during the war for being conscientious objectors, or in their seventies, like Benjamin Spock, who had written the How to Raise a Child book that our parents consulted in bringing us up. The anti-war resistance became a truly national movement in October 1967 with the March on the Pentagon. Finally, sexual morality. Initially, this was more personal, and the arena of conflict was not in public, but at the family dinner table. Nevertheless, sexuality became an engine of cultural change. You know, really, music and fashion and cinema were at rock bottom about sexual freedom. Once again, 1967 was the key year in this trend. The culture came out from the dining room to blossom at the Monterey Pop Festival and in the Summer of Love, which existed in the same time and space as the long, hot summer. What happened in 1968 was a violent explosion of right and left reaction to all of the events of the previous half-decade. Civil rights, the murder of the two outstanding leaders of progressive America, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, Vietnam. The peaceful 1967 march to the Pentagon, led by older men, would be replaced by more aggressive and explicitly left-wing demonstrations led by students, culminating in the riot at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. The culture grew political as well. Rock and roll became a place for dark expression. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. And behind the scenes, unknown to all but a handful, the new Republican Party, the party of Nixon, became the party of do anything to win, divide the country racially via the Southern strategy, commit treason, the word used privately by the Republican leader in the Senate by scuppering a peace deal that would have brought a truce to Vietnam. It was an act that would ultimately account for an additional 22,000 American soldiers' lives. Other than the fact that the Republicans will still do anything to win, including work with America's adversary, Russia, how much of the 1968 mise-en-scene is a guide for today? It truly is a different world, as different as 1968 was to 1918. The paradigm has shifted on the economy, and God knows, on standards of mainstream political leadership in the Anglo-American world. But has the paradigm shifted on modes of political activism, on political goals? The anti-globalism movement can always gather a crowd at a G7 meeting, or a G8 meeting, or a G20 meeting. The Occupy movement sparked for a moment in 2011, but have either shifted the paradigm? Sometimes I wish the 60s hadn't been so well documented in news media. Journalism is the first rough draft of history, emphasis here on rough. If people remembered that the news image or even eyewitness article is never more than an outline of what happened in a riot, on a demonstration, at an assassination, that might free them up to shift the paradigm on political activism especially those on the cusp of adolescence and adulthood. 
1968, when, if we looked back fifty years, we couldn't see ourselves, we were absolutely free, spontaneously, without a blueprint, a new paradigm was created. When Occupy finally made it to the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral in 2011, I reported on it, wrote the first rough draft of that event. It seemed to me, looking at many of those in the crowd, all young enough to be my children, that they were consciously reenacting scenes from 1968. I was there the first time, I thought. Make something new, kids. Break things apart. The past is only a prologue. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, wrote George Santayana, and everyone who writes or thinks about history is grateful eternally for that aphorism. But Santayana didn't add two corollaries. Those who remember the past too often are also condemned to repeat it, as are those who remember it incorrectly. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more, at the website www.goldfarpod.com. And while you're visiting, you can make a donation. Please do, to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks. <laughs>